if you brought your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you have, turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Um, Tanya read to you this morning parallel account of what I'm going to read to you. Uh, this is the, the triumphal entry. You can read it in all four of the Gospels. It's one of the few things that appears in all four of the Gospels. Uh, Tanya read to you the account out of John this morning. I'm going to read to you the account out of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28, says, And when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the, wh <coughs> excuse me, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereupon never a man set. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do you loose him? Thus shall you say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they that, are, <coughs> that were sent went their way. And found even as the, as excuse me, and found even as he said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto him, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set uh, Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the, of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Will you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we just humbly come before you here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the good day, for the many blessings. Thank you for the opportunity you've given uh, us to come here this morning, to gather here to openly, freely worship you here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings that you poured out on us, but of course, we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, Lord God, that you sent him and gave him for a wretch like me. Lord, for, for us, when we were uh, still yet sinners, when we were enmity with you, when we were lost, uh, when we didn't care, when we weren't seeking you, when we didn't give no thought, Lord, when we were still uh, rebellion, rebelling against you, Lord, you've done it anyways. And so, Lord, let us give you the praise and the glory alone because you alone are worthy of it and Lord I just pray as we go forward here this morning in this service Lord that you would just meet every need that is here God you know what where we stand you know what is going on in our lives you know what we're experiencing what we're dealing with what we struggle with you know where we fall short Lord uh, Lord there's nothing that is hidden from you nothing that is not known to you so Lord I just pray here this morning Lord that you would move in our midst in a mighty way God that you would just do what only you can do here this morning by your 
Spirit and we'll give you all the glory for it. Lord, uh, my heart's desire, uh, Lord, is, is to see you lifted up and to see you glorified. And Lord, I desire, Lord, if there is any here this morning that don't know you, any that are lost and undone, any that have strayed away, any that have fallen away, any that are just not sure of where they stand, that if they were to die today, they don't know whether they would go to heaven or hell or if there even is a heaven or hell. Uh, they don't know what to think about you, Lord. I pray that today would be the day that you would shake them to the very core, to the very foundation. God, that today would be the day that you'd get a hold of them before it's everlasting too late because the most important thing is our walk with you, our relationship with you. Do we know you? Uh, do, do he abide in you? Uh, Lord, uh, I'm just praying here this morning, Lord, that none would leave here lost this morning, but everyone would leave here knowing you and knowing that they're yours and knowing that no matter what would happen, they're going to spend an eternity with you. So, Lord, I'm asking that you'd pour out that old-time Holy Ghost conviction here this morning. And, God, you wouldn't give us any peace until everything was right with you. Lord, let me ask one last thing. I need your help. I can't preach without you. Lest you give it to me, I ain't got nothing to say. So, Lord, I'm asking that you'd clear my mind of everything but your message, your words, your thoughts. Lord, that you'd sharpen my focus, Lord, and my mind, Lord, that it be on you and your word alone. I pray, Lord, that you would loose my tongue, Lord, that you'd give me the words to speak. Lord, that I wouldn't stumble over my words, God, but you would just make it clear here this morning. And Lord, give me the words that you'd have me to speak, Lord, and that just... Lord, they help them just to roll right off my tongue, Lord, that it, and that they would know, Lord, it's from my spirit to theirs, but it comes from you. It's your word, your message, your thoughts. So, Lord, I'm asking you, just help me get out of the way. Help all of us to get out of the way and let you be God of this service here this morning, and we'll be sure and give you all the glory for it because we love you, we worship you, and we praise your holy name. We ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. I don't always preach exactly with special days. I don't always preach a Mother's Day sermon on Mother's Day and a Father's Day sermon on Father's Day. And, um, I don't always preach, you know, um, Thanksgiving sermon, thanks, you know, uh, the Sunday before or after Thanksgiving. Um, I, I usually preach an Easter message on Easter and a Christmas message at Christmas time, but there's been times where I haven't. There's been a lot of times, this is Palm Sunday, and there's been a lot of times that I didn't even really acknowledge Palm Sunday. It just went on. I felt like the Lord led me in a different direction this morning. I'm going to preach a Palm Sunday message to you, though, because I feel that's God's leading. Um, and everything that we've done here this morning, as far as the scripture goes, from the call to worship from Psalms that I give you, that Psalm 118 is probably, we don't know for sure, but it, it's, quoted, it's quoted a couple times uh, here in the, in the scriptures and all four of the Gospels having to do here on Palm Sunday. It's probably, part of that was probably what the people were singing as they were going uh, to, to Jerusalem and, and getting ready and going to you know, Palm Sunday walking there. You know, that's an amazing thing. That's one thing that I feel like that we've lost uh, in this day and time, right? Uh, you know, they walked. When they were going to worship God, they had to walk there. 
uh, they would sing the psalms and sing spiritual hymns and things like that. I mean, by the time, you know, here's how we'd say it. By the time they got to church, they was having church already. I, I've heard the old timers talk about, you know, not very long ago. I'm talking, I'm talking the age of many of you's parents and my grandparents, you know, some of you's grandparents. They'd talk about walking to church and how they would, you know, they'd talk about the Bible and talk about God and sing on the way there. They were having church before they even got there. We live in a day and age that... That's still possible as we drive there. I find myself come near fighting with Jennifer than, than singing a psalm. I, I'm a little bit joking there, but that's when Satan will attack. That's what he would rather, you know, you do. He'd rather you come to church, you know, all um, in a bad mood, right? Maybe you just had a disagreement or a fight. Maybe you just remembered something. Maybe you saw somebody on the way here and you brought back a memory and you got aggravated about it all over again. Maybe you're distracted thinking about other things that you're worried about or mad about other things, right? He'd rather you come here this morning and sat down with a sour face and arms crossed saying, I dare you to bless me. That's the truth. We need to guard against that. I think we need to start preparing ourselves for worship before we ever get here. Really, maybe we ought to start preparing ourselves the day before. But we ought to come here already ready. I think that's kind of the picture of what was going on here. And so what is happening, this is a special day, this is a holy day, this is Palm Sunday. Right? This is the triumphal entry. This is the Sunday before the resurrection, right? The Sunday before the crucifixion. This is the beginning. Remember, Sunday is the first day of the week. It is not the last day of the week. It is the first day of the week. And so here it is. Here is the beginning of what we refer to as the Passion Week, right? So it is now the Sunday before Christ's crucifixion and then resurrection, right? And, And as we look at this, as we read this, right, Jesus has drawn near to the eastern side. The eastern side, right? That's the far side away from Jerusalem, right? He has come to the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives on his way to Jerusalem. He's, been, he's come from Jericho, which is down by the Dead Sea, right? That's the lowest point on the face of the earth, right? And it's been this upward march, right? And they've probably been singing along the way as they went, right? 118th Psalm, maybe, maybe some others, right? Uh, and they've been talking, and, and, and they've probably been having church long before this. But anyways, as they come up on the eastern, up the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, right? Getting ready to top out. You top out on the Mount of Olives, and then there, you're looking at Jerusalem, you're looking at the Temple Mount, there's just a valley that separates you or a gorge or a whatever you, a holler is what I would call it. There's a big holler between the two. That's all that separates them, right? As they come up and they've got this wonderful view, they see this. There's two little villages there, right? Bethany and Bethpage, or however you say it, are right there. And so as they draw near to these two villages, um, Jesus sends two of his disciples out uh, into a village to to get a cult for his entrance into Jerusalem, right? He sends these two guys, right? Two of his disciples tell them, uh, I've preached before on what must have went through their mind, uh, and maybe I will again one of these days. Who knows? But anyways, he sends them, and he sends the two disciples into the village, right, to get this, this cult. He tells them what the scene will look like. Things unfold exactly like uh, he said they would. The owners say what he said. 
said they would say, so they respond the way Jesus told them to respond, right? Everything goes just exactly how Jesus uh, said that they would, right? And so now he has this, he is mounted on this uh, this colt, right? This is the, the foal of, of a donkey, right? Uh, that has never, no man has ever sat on before. It wasn't broke beforehand. It wasn't prepared beforehand, right? I think part of what it's showing is Christ, um, uh, his... Uh, dominion over even the animals. Even the animals are willing to obey him. In this very passage of scriptures when the Pharisees get upset, right? Because they think, as they're starting to cry out about the king, they think that the Romans might get upset and think that, the, you know, that there's some sort of rebellion getting ready to take place. And they're warning Jesus. They're telling him, tell these disciples, tell these people to shut up. They're going to get us in trouble here. And Jesus said if they were to shut their mouths, the very rocks would cry out. There is the scene. Jesus, the picture now, and we talked about this in our Bible study when we studied uh, Zechariah not very long ago. Um, we studied the very scripture that is being fulfilled here, right? Do you, do you remember what it is? It's Zechariah chapter, well, in verse 38, let me read this. In verse 38, it says, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, right? So, so the, their joyful shouts that I was just talking about just a minute ago, right, is, is, is basically them saying, long live the king, right? As Tanya read this morning in John's account, they are, they are, lay, they are literally strewing the path, they're paving the way with palm branches and waving their palm branches and throwing their garments out and stuff, you know, and that's why it's referred to often as Palm Sunday, right? And, and all of this is what I was starting to say just a minute ago is fulfill the scripture that was written in Zechariah 9.9 whenever Zechariah prophesied, right? We're talking 400 plus, five, probably over 500 years before this when he said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lonely and riding upon an ass and upon the colt of an ass. And remember, we talked about this, the picture of that, right? Um, one of the reasons why they're going to have trouble accepting him as the king, right? Remember, notice how excited they are right now. It's not going to be very long. Right now, they are hailing long live the king, right? They are ushering the triumphal entry of the king into Jerusalem. But just in a few short days, they're going to be in the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him, right? They are going to be willing to, take, to allow a known insurrectionist and murderer by the name of Barabbas, they are going to prefer his release over Jesus' release, who they know along with everybody else has done nothing. Look how fast the crowd is going to turn on him. But here it is. He is doing this in fulfilling the prophecy. And it's, it, it is a remarkable prophecy. Understand that when the Jews looked at the coming of the Messiah... They didn't see two comings as we see. Right? We see a first coming where he come humbly. Right? Babe born uh, in a manger. Manger for a bed. Right? Uh, most humble of circumstances. Lived a humble life. Not known until the last few years of his life. Died a horrific death. 
right? On Calvary's cross for our sin. That wasn't what, I mean, they just had a hard time seeing it that way because what they saw and what they understood and what they were thinking and what they were expecting is what we view as what we see and recognize as the second coming, right? He, he is coming, right? In the second coming, how does it, in Revelation chapter 19, how does it present him coming? He's coming on a white horse, right? He's got an army following him, right? Uh, the scripture talks about a sword coming out of his mouth, which just means he's spoken word there. But anyways, it's the, it's the, the personification, the, the picture of, of a great, mighty warrior king leading his people into battle, right? To oh, throw off all oppression, to defeat uh, Satan and all of his armies, right? To subdue all the kings of the world. That's the picture. That's what they were expecting. But he comes in on just the opposite. I give this image so that you understood this in our Bible study, and I'll say it again here. Now all them old westerns and them old good old movies, the good old days, the hero, right? It's when the good guys wore white hats and the bad guys wore black hats, Right? The hero, he has got a, a good-looking horse. Big, fleshy, powerful, tall horse. Guarantee it. If you never caught that, go back and watch him. You'll see what I'm saying. You never saw John Wayne ride in on a burrow. Unless it was done for comedic effect, all right? But you never saw him, right, as portrayed as the hero or somebody like that. But yet that's essentially what Jesus is riding in on. It's not actually a burrow, but it, you could picture that. That's about what it's going to look like. That's not what the king, right? That's not what he looks like. But it's done specifically to fulfill this prophecy. And when he comes back the second time, that's why Revelation chapter 19 says that he, that's what he's going to be riding his mighty War horse, that's when he's going to be riding the white horse. That's when he's going to come and subdue all the armies of the earth and the kings and so on and so forth. But here he's fulfilling the prophecy. It's coming lowly, humbly on this day. It says that in the very scriptures that I read, that the disciples did not understand until later. This time they just didn't understand. They just didn't get it. So here he is. This is to announce that he was indeed the Messiah, the awaited Savior King. Jesus has chosen a time, or God has chosen a time, when all Israel would be gathered at Jerusalem, it's Passover. A place where huge crowds, or it's a time coming up to Passover, it's a time when huge crowds could see him. It was a way of proclaiming his mission, right? Uh, that he, that, that was unmistakable. I mean, think about this for just a minute. He has just walked over a hundred miles from Galilee to Jerusalem, the way they go around, right? They didn't go the straight path usually. They go around to get there because they didn't want to go through Samaria. So it's probably a hundred miles or so that he has just walked. Nowhere else in the Gospels do we read of him riding anywhere else 
And listen to me, he hardly needed a ride for that last mile. He was saying, here I am, the long-awaited king, the Messiah. And the people absolutely went wild. But it doesn't last very long, like I mentioned a while ago. Right now, though, at this point on Palm Sunday, they are sure that their liberation from the Romans was at hand. The people were praising God for giving them a king, uh, but they had the wrong idea about Jesus. They were missing it. They expected him, as I said a minute ago, to be a national leader, right? Who would restore their nation to its former glory, right? Who would give them their freedom from the Roman Empire and would overthrow them, right? And when it became apparent that Jesus was not going to fulfill their hopes, not at this time anyways, many people turned against him. As I mentioned here, uh, the fact of Jesus' humble entry, I think it was a symbolic action that was meant to show that his kingdom was not of this world. He had not come to rule by force or violence because his kingdom was a spiritual one. Now, in all of this, the reason I, what I'm trying to drive at here, get to, is the part in all this that gets me is what it says in verse 31 and repeats it in verse 34. In verse 31, Jesus is explaining to the two disciples how this is going to go down when they go get this colt. He says, and if any man asks you, why do you lose him? Right? He's told them, right, you're going to go on the, this crossroads, there's going to be a colt tied up, and you go and unloose him and bring him here, right? And if anyone asks you what you're doing, why do you lose him? Thus shall you say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. And then in verse 34, right, 32, 33, 34, this is playing out exactly how Jesus said and as when the disciples went and got him right here, verse 34, and they said, this is their response, when the people said, hey, what are you doing? That's not yours. Why are you taking that? They said, the Lord hath need of him. Need. Think about this with me for a minute. Does God actually need anything from us? I mean, Jesus, let's get theological for a minute. Jesus is 100% man, but he's 100% God. He is what is rightfully referred to often as the God-man, right? And so we think about this for a minute. Jesus, his divine nature, right? Jesus is God, right? God is holy. He is eternal. He is almighty. And he is totally self-sufficient. He does not need any created being. But all of creation needs him. Think about it for just a second, right? People wonder, you know, and they worry. Right? This whole world is spinning around the sun, right? At a certain speed, at an exact distance from the sun. And if it was to move in or out, just I'm, we're talking fraction of a percentage, right? We, it, the whole thing would either freeze up or burn up, right? Everything would out, be out of balance. It wouldn't be right, right? And all kinds of people spend their lifetime worrying about stuff like that. But do you not understand the very creator is the one that keeps the balance and keeps things exactly where they are, right? It's like it's in his hand, right? And so this right, creation, all of creation is dependent upon him but he is not dependent upon creation for anything. And all of creation, think about this. 
when he takes away your breath, you die and return to the dust that this mortal body comes from. We are dependent on God, but God is not dependent on us. God suffers no lack. He knows no limitation, right? And he experiences no deficiency whatsoever. He is, as it says in, um, in the book of Exodus, right? He is the great I am that I am, right? He's saying, I will be who I will be. I will be what I will be. If he needed anything to exist to what we think of as stay alive, right? If he needed anything to feel complete, then he would not be God. By very definition, he needs nothing. He is totally self-sufficient. God does not need our work. Now, hear me close. Because if you listen to the next couple of things I say and stop there, you might be a little confounded or confused. But listen to me. What I'm telling you is the truth. He doesn't need our work. He doesn't need our money. God can get things done without a fundraiser. He doesn't ask for any help when he created, or he didn't ask for any help when he created the universe, and he can get along just fine without any help now. He doesn't need our worship either. He doesn't need our praise to build up his self-esteem. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our work. He doesn't need our money. As a matter of fact, when the Apostle Paul was preaching on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, he says, Paul himself says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. God does not need us. But amazingly, he loves us. And in his goodness, his grace, he wants us to live with him forever. So because of that, 2,000 years ago, God himself put on flesh and came to earth and dwelt among us and gave his life to pay for our sin. He paid the ultimate price to reconcile us to himself. And although it is true that God can accomplish his, his purpose, right? God can accomplish his purposes without us. The amazing thing for us to realize is the fact that on many occasions, God chooses to use ordinary people like you and I in the carrying out of his plan. Can I prove to you real quick? I know it's already 5 after 12, but lunch will still be there when you get there. Can I prove to you real quick what I mean? You, you can go read this this afternoon and check it out. John chapter 4. Jesus says there he must need to go through Samaria. He had an appointment with the Samaritan woman for a drink of water. That's what he asked ever, for a drink of water. He could have provided it for himself. He didn't really need it. I guess we want to get technical. But he made himself dependent upon her. 
If you go two chapters farther, John chapter 6, you see the feeding of the 5,000. The, fa- the feeding of the 5,000, they're tired and they're hungry, and the 5,000 is just counting men, right? You add women and children to that, and you've got a lot more. I figured it up one time, and you're talking like 25,000 pounds of food to feed how many people was probably there? We're talking a semi-truck load of food, right? Is, is at least is what it would take, right? And Jesus could have provided that, uh, that food totally on his own. He could have produced it out of thin air. He could have turned the rocks uh, into bread, right? He could have done anything like that, right? He could have just made the people not hungry any longer, right? He could have filled their stomachs without them ever even opening their mouths. But he didn't. Instead, he chose to make himself dependent on a little boy. There's something bigger happening there, right? There's a little boy that brought a sack lunch, right, that had what it calls five loaves of barley, which is just five little cakes, five little pieces, been like five little crackers, all right? And two fishes, don't think big fish, uh, like little sardines. It was, that, it was a little boy's sack lunch. He chose to make him dependent upon that little boy to give up his lunch. And he used that to feed the multitude. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus borrowed a boat. We talked about, started to talk about this a little bit Wednesday night in our Bible study. Jesus borrowed a boat from Simon Peter so that he could sit in it while he taught, taught the multitude, right? He's there by the seashore, the Sea of Galilee, big crowd coming in, pressing in on him. He's getting ready to call some of the disciples to follow him, and he's teaching the crowd, but the crowd is getting so big and pressing on him. What he wanted to do was he asked to borrow Peter's boat so that he could go out in the water just a little bit and sit there, and the crowd couldn't push in on him anymore, and he could teach them. That seems like a good, reasonable request, but you see he's making himself dependent. He asked Peter, right? He's making himself dependent there. He didn't need that. Do you understand? He could have stood on the water and taught them. He walks on it later. He made himself dependent upon Peter in order to accomplish his purpose. So on Palm Sunday, when the disciples said, the Lord hath need of your coat, they were essentially saying, if you will let him, the Lord would like to use you in order to bless the entire world. When word comes to you this Palm Sunday that the Lord hath need of you, or something in your possession? How will you respond? Holy Spirit is coming to you and he's saying, if you will let God, he would like to use you to be a blessing to others, maybe to be a blessing to the entire world. Now understand the nature of God. He never takes. He always asks. And you always have the option of refusing. You always have the option of grieving the spirit. You always have the option of hardening your heart and saying no. But is that really who you want to be? The person who hardens his heart? The person who says no? The person who rejects the Lord? Look, I honestly believe 
the bottom line is that your willingness or lack thereof to submit yourself and everything that you are and, and have and, and who you are, your willingness to submit that to the Lord's service is an indicator of our condition of our hearts. So here's the, what I come to say, and this is it. Zephyr comes for a song of invitation. Today, today, the Lord hath need of you. The Lord hath need of you. What's going to be your response? How are you going to respond? As she comes for a song of invitation, I invite you to stand to your feet this morning because I'm going to open the altar. As she begins to play, I want you to know the altar is open here this morning. What does that mean? That means that there's a place here to come and kneel in the presence of God and to pray, to seek His faith. I, I know you can pray anywhere, anytime, any place. That's true, you should. But here's a special place that we've set aside just for this purpose. So if the Holy Spirit of God is dealing with your heart this morning, I'm going to invite you and ask you, would you come this morning? If you've got a need, would you come this morning? Maybe there's a special need in your own life. Maybe there's something in the lives of your friend or your, your neighbors or your children or grandchildren or whatever the case may be, somebody special to you. Maybe the Spirit of God is burdening your heart with somebody. Would you come and seek the Lord for them? Whatever it is, maybe it's you this morning. Maybe you realize you're not where you ought to be. You're not doing what you ought to do. I'm begging you, would you come this morning? Whatever it is, don't miss this opportunity. If the Spirit of God is dealing with you, would you come this morning? Would you come?